I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Let's talk some Cleveland Cavalier basketball. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your host, Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, the Colin Cowherd Show, the Dan Patrick Show, a lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan. Now, this podcast, I don't know that I've ever been as high as I feel right now in this moment. Five-game win streak. Let's break this down, shall we? You can only win against the teams that you face. So, I will acknowledge a few things right off the top. The Cavs have defeated the Bulls, the Timberwolves, the Kings, the Heat, and the Rockets, all consecutively. Three of those teams have been decimated by injuries when the Cavs have defeated them. The Bulls, the Heat, and now the Rockets. Although the Rockets are a terrible team, probably would have dominated them anyway. They were playing without Eric Gordon, without Christian Wood, without Jalen Green, and without Kevin Porter Jr. And while that team has been playing better without Jalen Green in the lineup, losing Christian Wood is definitely a blow. Losing Eric Gordon, who's been playing very well recently, definitely a blow. They were getting great play out of Garrison Matthews, out of Jay Sean Tate. Now, Okoro put the clamps on Matthews tonight, who decided that he would just try to run through any screen set in front of him. But maybe that was out of frustration, because what had been a dead-eye shooter during this winning stretch that the Rockets had put together after the Jalen Green injury, well, he came back down to earth violently tonight, almost as violently as Jay Sean Tate came down to earth after that first-quarter block by Jared Allen tonight. But Garrison Matthews, in abysmal night. 0 for 6 from the floor. Did not score but one point, and that was on a free throw. So, I can understand his frustration. DJ Augustine tossed from the game altogether. If there is a bright spot for the Rockets in tonight's demoralizing loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers, it's that Shangun was very good. Anyone who's a Cavs Twitter, Cavs Reddit guy has seen a subcurrent of NBA Twitter mostly Rockets Twitter, make the claims that if Shengun had more minutes, he would be the Rookie of the Year candidate. And a lot of that has been buoyed by the fact that in the Summer League, when the Cavs faced the Rockets, Shengun outplayed Mobley that day. But in the games that matter, that has not been the case this year. Over the course of this season, he is averaging less than 20 minutes a game. And he's fairly good. Nine points, five rebounds, a few assists a game. That is respectable. Tonight, very good. 19 points, 11 boards, 5 assists. But where you really see the difference is on the defensive end. Not just because Mobley is arguably a top 5-10 to 10 defender in the league already in his rookie year, but in that first half, you saw Shen Goon over-pursue multiple times. Now, Darius Garland is a hard man to defend. He's very cagey. On one of those plays in particular, though, Shengun seemed determined to block Darius Garland as he drove to the hoop, and he jumped prematurely, landed on top of Garland as he went out of bounds, and Ed Davis was left alone, under the rim, unguarded, for an uncontested dunk. There was another closeout in the corner that Shengun bit hard on a three-point look and just got blown by. Those are the types of plays that you kept seeing out of the Rockets in the first half. There was not a pump fake that they didn't love. Kevin Love. Isaac Okoro was even getting people in the air, which is quite the turn of events because this is a man who before this 
was being left alone with regularity. But you can't leave Hot Streak Okoro alone because he will bury you from them corners. They were up by 19 at the end of the first quarter. It was 35-16. to 16, And they poured it on in the second quarter, outscoring them at halftime, 69-38. to 38. So garbage time took over in the second half. And that is when Shen Goon was at his absolute best, scoring 11 points, 10 rebounds, all of that after the game was far out of reach. He was very good. But keep it in perspective. Because if later in the season I see some Rockets fan post tonight's box score, when A, Mobley didn't play, and B, most of his damage came against Ed Davis, Dylan Windler, and Kevin Pangos, I'm going to lose it. I'm not actually going to lose it. It's hard to be that upset when you destroy a team by 30-plus points. Over the last five games, an average victory of 20 points. These are runaway wins, and the Cavs are climbing in the standings as this is happening. Right now, they sit at fourth, and with a matchup, Next, against the Milwaukee Bucks, who are just one game ahead of them, they could pull into a virtual tie with the Bucks. 19 and 11 for the Bucks, 18 and 12 for the Cavs. We could be looking at a New Year's where we're well over our win total from last season. They won just 22 games last year. The Cavs just have to win four of their last seven games in this calendar year, and they will find themselves equaling their win total from the entire season last year. So there is no scenario in which you're not entering 2022 in a far better place as a Cavalier fan than you have been in years, even arguably than during the last couple years of the LeBron era. Now, on a surface level, I understand that sounds blasphemous, but hear me out. As a fan, with Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, that iteration of the Warriors, they did feel like they were an extreme long shot. Of course. Making it to the finals is an incredible accomplishment, but you could look at that team and acknowledge a few things. Our success and our failure rode solely on the shoulders of LeBron James. We built a team around a generational, transcendent player, and the role players added around him were meant to maximize his abilities. And there was always pressure to do it in short order because LeBron had proven to be fairly volatile. If you didn't show him you were trying to compete to win right now, there was no long-term plan for LeBron that looked at the team as a whole. There was a long-term plan for LeBron as an individual. And that's not meant as an insult. It's just the reality. When he felt the Cavs had not put a winner around him, he left. When he felt the Cavs were no longer a contender after they won a title, he left. When he felt Miami wasn't doing their part, didn't retain Mike Miller and other moves of that nature, he left. That can put a GM in a very difficult position of having to make decisions that he knows may be slightly beneficial now, excessively detrimental later. We fully embraced all that came with that in order to reach the mountaintop, win the NBA Finals in 2016. It was all worth it. There's no debate about that. We can still acknowledge it took a while to dig out. And now the Cavs are finally on the other side of that with one remaining piece from the LeBron Cavs, on a giant money deal, and that's Kevin Love. This is a Cavalier team that is going to have some very interesting possibilities because they are not constructed like a team that LeBron is on. Look at the Lakers. All of their money is tied up on three max contract guys who they ideally don't want to have to part with, but the reality is for them to make any significant change, if the results aren't what they want them to be, they have to move Russell Westbrook. 
They have to figure out how to get his salary off the books, and that either involves paying people to take him with your other young talent on the roster or using draft picks, which they've traded a lot of already because it's a LeBron team. That's what you do. You mortgage the future for the present. Whereas the Cavs, if God forbid, all of a sudden, this core who's been playing so well together, if all of a sudden it shifts on a dime and they can't get along and there's no chemistry, you have multiple exit strategies if it doesn't work. With the LeBron Cavs, you had one exit strategy. You tear the whole thing down. And you wait out the deals that you paid well over market value because you didn't have replacement value. Your guys like J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson. With this Cavs team, if for whatever reason you decide that one of the components doesn't fit or that one guy decides he doesn't want to be here, well, you have value and talent spread across the roster at different positions, which make a pivot far more possible. You're not left with four starters who are all just perimeter shooters built to space the floor around LeBron. You're left with four starters who are two-way players who could seemingly plug in with another player and keep the momentum moving. This team is building a culture and an offensive system that's not focused around one person. Yes, Garland is the one who seemingly makes it go, but he doesn't also have to be the best defender on the team, be the best rebounder, be the best scorer. And I'm not saying this as a way to suggest that we should even make any significant changes to this core. This is working. We need to see where this goes. But what I'm saying is, we need to celebrate the patience and the prudence that this front office has had in building this team in a way which does not leverage the future or the present. They didn't pay to get off of Love's deal. They wrote it out, and it's paying dividends now. They didn't trade valuable pieces to get extra lottery picks. They let guys develop internally, and it's paying dividends now. They have not rushed to offload first-round picks for guys who are short-term band-aids. They're being very prudent in adding guys to the roster, and I'm talking about Markkanen, and I'm talking about Jared Allen, guys who they think can fit here long-term and grow at the same trajectory as Darius Garland, as Evan Mobley. It makes me far more confident that we can absorb something like a season-ending injury to one of the players in our core because there's just simply a greater division of responsibilities across the whole roster. Eight guys right now in double digits. And Isaac Okoro is averaging nine points a game. He's right there. And having that kind of depth of talent gives you way more options in the future. More maneuverability contractually because you don't have all your money tied up in a few unmovable pieces. You have it spread and dispersed over a core who you believe in, but with the flexibility to make pivots if need be. It's not going to be high peak, incredibly low valley. This could be sustainable success for the next decade. And at present, the Cavs really only have two older players who are main pieces of their rotation. And that would be Ricky Rubio, who's an expiring deal. And then Kevin Love, who is unique to almost all this roster in that he still has a year remaining on his deal at a significant salary. He'll make just shy of $30 million next season. So there's a very realistic possibility that we enter next year knowing we have our point guard of the future. We have our center of the future. We have our power forward of the future. We have Markinen locked up for multiple years. We have a Coro still for at least a couple seasons of his rookie deal, and then we can assess where he's at or what his value is. And you never know what could be added with Kevin Love if they choose they want to move on from him. 
we may be looking at a situation very similar to what the Cavs encountered with Larry Nance Jr. this year. Older guy, good guy, still capable NBA player. Now his contract is more prohibitive. It certainly is not as attractive as Larry Nance Jr.'s deal was. The one thing it does offer is the ability to match some large incoming contracts. I'm not here to workshop Kevin Love deals, but just look at the ones that are being rumored. You have all these guys who keep getting brought up. Karis Levert, who makes almost $20 million, or Brandon Ingram, who makes $35 million, or even in the summer when it was Ben Simmons. All those deals were fairly large in terms of NBA landscape. And when those things happen, you have to match money. And a guy like Kevin Love gives you options. It's essentially a get-out-of-contractual-jail-free card for whatever team might be interested in acquiring him. And if he's a productive on-court player for that team, it's all the better. It just opens up some avenues that may be worth investigating or maybe not. Maybe the culture is so good that you don't risk disrupting it. Because that is a valuable consideration in all these hypotheticals that have got brought up over the last week, mainly in regards to Karis LeVert. Do you bring in a wing who's not substantially better, who it's not even guaranteed is a substantial upgrade, knowing it could hinder the development of a guy who you have true cost control over for the next three to five years. Levert could come in, he could blow up, and he could walk out the door after next season as an unrestricted free agent, and there is not a damn thing the Cavs could do about it. But Okoro, by holding on to his rights, gives you the ability to retain him, no matter what the cost is. And that's valuable for a team who could potentially be a contending team during that window. And that's the way it's trending with this Cavaliers roster. So you have to be prudent in deciding how much faith do you want to put in Isaac's development and is there a point at which you would pull the plug for a bigger splash move. In my view, Levert is not that move. And I said that and detailed that on last week's Fear the Fro episode. But what I'm more intrigued by is the possibility that Kevin Love could present Larry Nance Jr. type possibilities to move him somewhere in a mutually beneficial situation that adds either one bigger salaried component or multiple rotational components. Or maybe you even find a team in a Jared Allen scenario, like the Hawks are, where they have some deals they probably regret in Bogdanovich and Danilo Gallinari, who Maybe they use an excessive young piece who they have depth at the position of. You know, Jalen Johnson, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish. These are all guys on rookie deals. They have to decide how to pay. And somebody is likely the odd man out. Maybe they package a bad deal with a young asset and move him to a team. The Cavs can look at situations like that as a way to extrapolate some long-term worth out of a guy who is improving his short-term value in Kevin Love. And understand, I'm just using the Hawks as an example. People were trying to do that with the Cavs this summer. Oh, maybe we can get Allen on the cheap because they drafted Mobley. Or, oh, maybe we can pluck Sexton or Garland because we view them as overlapping guards, not guys who can play complementary spots beside one another. And whether that's true or not, a lot of times those are the scenarios where teams investigate if another team's player has more worth to them than they do to others. Jared Allen is now the poster child for this. The Nets had no desire to pay Jared Allen top dollar on a team that was going to be led by Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, who had a close kinship with DeAndre Jordan. So they offloaded him at what most people realize now, bargain basement pricing. The other way you can go 
is by using Kevin Love's large deal as a way to absorb other bad money that's bundled with a good asset. Torian Prince was essentially the bad asset, contractually anyway, that came with Jared Allen. Now, of course, they've turned Prince into Rubio. It's turned out to be a massive win for the Cavs. But there are scenarios where somebody could come back for Love, who is a worse player on a debatably as bad deal, that could become a guy bundled with a younger, cost-controlled asset. All those things are possibilities that are exciting to think about because now that the core's in place, you're just working around the fringes. But that's enough of the hypothetical future talk for now. Let's live in the present. Let's get back to the present and talk about a guy who's kind of on the fringe of the core. In my view, the irreplaceable guys are Garland and Mobley, and even Allen is climbing into that. And then a tier below, I would probably put Sexton, but that could be recency bias. I freely acknowledge that. I am definitely in the camp of people who want to retain him. And then I would put Okoro and Markin in, kind of on their own level here, in terms of young pieces that are definitely important, but I think the Cavs can win games whether they have a good game or not. A lot of those other guys that I put further up the ladder, I think the fate of the Cavs is tied far more to their presence and their performance. But let's look more at Isaac Okoro. All of a sudden, Mr. Double Digits. You are getting two-way play multiple games now. Over the course of this past five games, to be averaging nearly 17 points a game, did we think we were going to be in this place just a week ago? You can listen to last week's episode of the Fear the Fro podcast, and I do feel good now in hindsight that I was preaching patience. Don't be too eager to just throw him in trade talks for Karis Levert or anyone, really. We need to appreciate the environment we have right now, which is an incubator for young talent. And we're doing this while winning games. 18 wins, even while prioritizing the development of several guys under the age of 24. Again, to draw the comparison to LeBron, he did not allow this type of thing. It was veterans who knew exactly what their role was. We are doing both. We're competing and we're developing. Very rarely do you get to put a guy as raw as a Koro amongst the top talent on your team, in the starting lineup, and still succeed in spite of the obvious shortcomings that Okoro has had. If he's able to grow, it is a huge win for the team long-term because it's like found money. It's the same way that I equate Colin Sexton's return next season. Assuming the Cavs retain him, this team is winning without him. I don't use that as an indictment to say, this is why we don't need the guy. I use that as a sign of, and guess how much more we can be with the guy. If you can start to pencil in double-digit scoring output on high efficiency from Isaac Okoro, if you can notch off win after win without Colin Sexton, just imagine how high the floor is with a fully healthy Cavalier roster. The floor of this team gets even higher. And that's why it's important, even during the bad games, to make sure that you maintain this long view. A lot of people would agree that he has not developed at the pace, which we all hoped. I will say, in Isaac Okoro's defense, he is being compared to rookies who have succeeded far sooner than anyone expected. The primary example, of course, being Colin Sexton and Evan Mobley. But even Darius Garland, to make the leaps he did from year one to year two, 
and now into year three, it's almost unfair to be a guy who plays largely off the ball and being measured against that standard. Even Jared Allen, such a substantial leap from last year to this season, that Isaac Okoro is being compared to those people. Some guys are stars. Some guys are role players. Maybe Isaac Okoro just turns into a very solid role player. That is perfectly fine by me. I don't even need the man to score double-digit points. I would be content if he shot under 10 points a game, if he does it with the kind of efficiency that we've seen during this stretch. And that's a lot to ask. I'd be happy if he does it with even a fraction of the efficiency that he's done it with during this five-game stretch. Let's look at those numbers. 17 points a game, four rebounds per game. But here is the mind-blowing part. He has shot 10 of 18 from three-point range, which is 55%. And he's shooting nearly 70% from the field. That is unsustainable, obviously. But a promising part of that sample is that all but one of the three-point looks that he's knocked down, nine of them, four have been from one corner, five have been from the other corner. And that is the shot that can open up the floor for everyone else around him. You just can't have guys sag way off of Coro if he starts knocking that down at even a reasonable clip. I'm not talking 55%. I'm talking 35%. It's such an improvement over the sub-20% he had been shooting from deep this year, that it will change the makeup of the offense. And let's also point to some of the other guys on the bench, because this goes beyond just a Coro. Love, during this five-game stretch, is shot 55% from three, averaging nearly 16 points a game. And Lowry Markinen, over the last five, he started out the season on a terrible cold streak, but shooting nearly 42% from deep. Those guys spacing the floor will change the game for Garland, Mobley, and Allen. They will have more room to maneuver. They will have more room for pick and rolls and pick and pops. That's the most important part. It's not about the counting stats for Okoro. It's about his aggressiveness, his efficiency, and his shooting improving. And as long as we're celebrating Love and Lowry and Okoro, it goes without saying that the role guys showed up in this first half. Dean Wade made every shot. Nine points, seven rebounds, perfect from the field, perfect from three-point land. This is a man not even in the rotation on a night-to-night basis, but because of the injury to Evan Mobley, he gets slid into the starting lineup, and boy, did he take advantage of the opportunity. Markinen chips in with a three-pointer. Okoro, he hit two three-pointers in two attempts in the first half, and Darius Garland Chipped in 17 points on 6 of 8 from the floor. All in the first half. That's to say nothing of what we saw out of Ricky Rubio. The way that he ended the first half. By stealing that ball, wraparound pass, behind his back, for a bucket, by Ed Davis, at the horn. Incredible. Four steals, 8 assists, and 7 points. That's a line that he's been giving us at the end of a game. And he did that just in the first half tonight. Ricky Rubio made his presence felt when the game was still somewhat competitive. It really wasn't that competitive most of the night, but on the night, he finished with seven points, 12 assists, four dimes. Very good. Didn't shoot hardly at all. It was more reminiscent of the Ricky Rubio we've been used to seeing in his previous stops. He wasn't a volume gunner tonight. Nobody really was. What's incredible is that even though this is a team that scored 124 points tonight, Only two Cavaliers 
took more than 10 shots. One of those was Darius Garland, who shot 11 times, and the other was Lowry Markkinen, who shot exactly 10 times. Everybody else on the entire roster, single-digit shot attempts. Markkinen, Wade, Okoro, Garland, and Kevin Love all contributed in double digits tonight, and that's the type of thing we're seeing on a night-in, night-out basis that makes this team feel far different. So I'm excited because in addition to all of our players surging at once, Okoro, Love, Lowry Markin, Rubio had a great night, Garland, nobody seems to be regressing yet as the season goes on. I guess you could say that Rubio's shooting has regressed some, but his need to shoot as much has also regressed because Okoro is starting to play better. Allen is asserting himself. Mobley is growing with every game. And J.B. Bickerstaff deserves credit. This man is coaching incredibly. The choice tonight to start Dean Wade. Now, he could have gone any number of ways. He could have slid Love into the starting lineup. He could have moved Markin into the four and put Osman in the starting lineup, which is not something we've seen. But certainly, he had options, and he's decided to put consistent rotations before just the highest profile player, which is the sign of a coach who's comfortable in his skin. I love what Bickerstaff did in putting Dean Wade in, taking a guy who's some games gets a DNP, and he immediately comes out of the gate and plays well. It's easy to celebrate in the situation we're in now. The Cavs are winning. They're winning big. They're blowing through some cream puffs. And you have the opposing coach have to go to the locker room because he's dehydrated from watching his team get absolutely curb stomped. It's no wonder Steven Silas had to leave. I hear you lose a lot of fluids when you puke all over yourself, which is basically exactly what the Rockets did the entire game today. So he left and John Lucas took over only to watch the Cavaliers disappoint him. Something he's also familiar with from his time coaching the Cavaliers, except this time he's on the opposite end of that. But that's enough taunting of the Rockets. Speaking of petty people, you know who else I wanted to touch on briefly? What is going on with the Memphis Grizzlies Twitter account? Trying to troll the Cavs. Getting ratioed, by the way, by the Cavs Twitter. Mocking Cavs Twitter as if it's not a thing. And then getting owned on their own thread. As one should, because this is the most exciting young team in basketball. I gotta say I like the Grizzlies. I like a lot of their players. I like the fact that they're a small market team. I like that they've consistently been competitive, despite generally being overwhelmed by the time the playoffs roll around. Both of our squads are presently sitting at fourth in their respective conferences. Without the kind of star power of a Steph Curry or Devin Booker or Chris Paul or even a Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. I mean, you could debatably argue that. But the Grizzlies, largely powered by a rookie contract guy in John Morant, the Cavs, powered by rookie contract guys in Garland and Mobley. We should be aligned as fan bases. Similar to the Bills and the Browns, the Lake Erie bros, there should be a respect and mutual admiration that goes between the franchises. I would root for them if we were out of it, which we won't be because we're juggernauts. I would hope the same would hold true for their fan base. But you just have this smarmy twat. I've done it. I've used it twice in the same episode now. Running the Memphis Grizzlies Twitter account, it's very disappointing. Somebody needs to pull him aside and tell him, listen, I know you're trying to get traffic. I know you think generating hate is a good way to get engagement. And certainly, I'm no one to talk. Nobody follows me on Twitter, at FearTheFroPod. But still, there's a decorum that us small market teams should exhibit. We're not the douches 
of the Lakers fan base. We're not the douches of the Celtics fan base. We're better than them. Post some interesting content. Or maybe some of your guys could catch alley-oops. I know Steven Adams doesn't really jump. I think what you'll see on Cavs Twitter is that watching Isaac Okoro dismember an entire three-man group of Houston Rockets on dunks or Jared Allen block Jay Sean Tate into oblivion, those are the types of exciting plays that get fans to flock to your account. John Morant makes those plays. So maybe this is just trying to fill the void while he's injured. But it's not our fault as a Cavs fan base that Jaron Jackson Jr. is a bootleg version of Evan Mobley. It's okay. He's still a very good player. You don't have to tear down the successes of our franchise because you feel it somehow impacts yours. It doesn't. You're like the Kobe fans who were threatened when LeBron ascended. They never faced off in the finals. Get over yourselves. The world doesn't revolve around you. But those are lessons you learn with time, as the old twat that I am have learned that lesson. So I will continue to pull for their team as a you know secondary interest to the Cavaliers. I'm not going to root against the players just because the people that they employ to run their Twitter account are smug and terrible individuals. Next game, we get a bigger test. We get to see how the Cavs do against the Milwaukee Bucks. They lost the first game to them. This one on the road, will it be a similar result? I don't know. But I do like the Cavs' chances because what they have going right now that is at, well, an all-time high for this season is the consistency and performance of their perimeter marksmen. All these guys, Markinen, Love, Okoro, they're heating up. If they can sustain it and you get the usual contributions you get from the, the core three, Garland, Mobley, and Allen, I think the Cavs can win that game. And I definitely like their chances of entering 2022 with as many or more wins than they had all of last year. So, nothing but positivity on the Fear the Fro podcast today. Please, follow me on social media at Fear the Fro Pod. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review if you're so inclined in the uh, Apple Podcast Store. Or don't. You know, I don't want to pressure you into anything. But I value all of you who have become listeners of this podcast It has grown by leaps and bounds. Certainly something that I took on as a labor of love in the summer is looking to be quite well-timed because the launch of my podcast this offseason seems to have coincided with the rebirth of the competitive Cleveland Cavaliers. So I hope you join me on the next episode. I plan to kind of ramp up and do these a little bit more frequently than once a week. Certainly. It's easy to react game to game. I've, I've been kind of syncing them up with road swings and home stretches. This seemed like a logical place to break it up because I thought I got to get in during this win streak before a game, which I'd say is 50-50 with the Bucks. But there will be more from the Fear the Fro pod, from myself, Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports in the future. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Fear the Fro. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.